Today we are starting a new series, James. Uh, the series is called In Faith, and the book of James is all about faith. If you look at the book of James, the theme throughout is the Christian life in faith. How, how do we do practical, everyday life in faith, right? Because the theme is, if you believe what you say you believe, it should affect your life. So it's both a book about what we believe, but how that affects our everyday life, our everyday actions. And um, we will uh, be going through this series uh, for eight weeks, looking at some different themes all about faith. I'm excited for it. Um, I personally love the book of James. Who loves the book of James? Right? It's definitely like one of the more uh, popular books of the Bible, I feel like. Um, a lot of people, it's definitely in their top five book of the Bible, I feel like. Um, it's up there for me. I don't have a list of, uh, I haven't rated all the books of the pipeline. <laughs> That'd be kind of a weird thing to do, but it's definitely probably top five for me. I'm very excited about this book. Um, do you guys know who wrote the book of James? James, brother of Jesus. So there are three main James in the Bible in the New Testament. One is James and John, the sons of Zebedee. It's not that James, that James um, was martyred um, very early on in, in uh, church history. Um, then there's James, the brother of Matthew, who is also a disciple, one of the twelve. It's not that James. That James we actually know very little about, other than he was a disciple and, and uh, brother of Matthew. Um, and then there's James, the brother of Jesus, who was not one of the twelve disciples, but after um, the ascension, worshipped Jesus, and wrote the book of James. So Jesus actually had two half-brothers. And I say half-brothers because they shared a mother, but they did not share a father because Mary was, had the, uh, was conceived by the Holy Spirit, whereas um, James and Jude were conceived by Joseph. Um, Jesus, uh, you could say stepfather, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Um, Je- Jesus had four brothers, and then it says sisters in the Bible. So we don't know how many sisters he had. He had at least two, because it's plural. So Jesus came from a family of at least seven children. It's a big family. Probably not a big family back then. Uh, it's probably a normal family um, for that time period. Um, but he had these younger brothers, and James is always listed first when they um, list his brothers, which means that James was the oldest underneath Jesus. Um, James would be... Um, the oldest of the four um, siblings, four brothers that were siblings of Jesus. Now, I personally cannot think of any better evidence for the deity of Christ than the fact that James worshipped Jesus. How many of you would worship your sibling? Is there anybody in here that would worship their sibling? Absolutely not, right? Uh there's probably no one else that knows just how undivine you are, right? Just how imperfect you are. You can say your parents, but your parents only know about the stuff they found out about and they caught you doing. Your sibling was there for all the other stuff, right? Uh, so there is nobody else that probably knows just how undivine you are, yet James worships Jesus. That's crazy that a sibling would worship their brother as Lord and Savior. I mean, to me, that speaks volumes as to who Jesus really was. If my brother started walking around and saying, I'm the Son of God, 
worship me. <laughs> um, I would probably start off making fun of him a lot. And then once I got boring to make fun of him, I'd be probably pretty concerned. And I would put that dude in a straight jacket and take him to the mental hospital. <laughs> like, <laughs> because there's no possible way that my brother is divine. And there's no possible way that my brother would believe that I'm divine. So when James is writing here and he's saying I'm a servant of Christ and he believes that Jesus is the divine son of God, um, it's a pretty powerful thing to know that his siblings even worshipped him. Now, James, though, to be fair, he didn't always believe Jesus. Actually, in the Gospels, none of his family believed him. In John, John 7, 5, it says, For not even his brothers believed him. Matthew 13, 57 said, A prophet, and this is Jesus speaking, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. I wonder if that was a painful statement for Jesus to say. He had his family he probably loved very dearly, and they didn't believe him. They didn't believe in him. And he says, uh, they don't honor me, you know, even in my own household. I must, I must, that must have been a very painful sentence to say for Jesus. And they, like uh, I would with my brother, they thought he was crazy, and they wanted to do something about it. In Mark 3.21, it says that, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. So they, they not only didn't believe him, they not only didn't honor him in this way, but they said he was out of his mind. And they seized him. They tried to put him in a straight jacket and bring the men in white coats. Now, what happened? What changed James' mind? I'm sure James saw that Jesus throughout his whole life was perfect. But you know, that's not enough, I don't think. Because you can explain that away, right? You can say, well, they're, they're, he's really a hypocrite. I'm sure when he's by himself, he's not so great, you know? Or I'm sure he's just putting on this show. Um, I'm sure his own jealousy of his brother, his own um, self-consciousness about his own inadequacies, compared to Jesus, got the best of James. I'm sure it was extremely difficult to be the sibling of someone who was perfect. I mean, it can be hard enough when your sibling is just better at something than you, right? And they seem like they're getting a lot of attention for it. You remember that? Like, my brother had, like, really good grades. And I just did my best to not get Ds. (laughs) That was mostly because I just didn't go to class. But... (laughs) I showed up enough to get C's. Um, and I remember, like, you know, like, why can't you get good grades like your brother? <laughs> you remember stuff like that? Can you imagine being the brother of Jesus, though, where he never messed up, was perfect and kind and loving and sweet and just never lied, never participated in your rebellion? You know, it would have been very difficult. I'm sure his siblings at times, didn't like him. I'm sure they did because Jesus, they did probably love him in some sense because if he's the perfect son of God and Jesus is so loving, I'm sure there was aspects they certainly loved about Jesus, that he was always kind to them, always sweet to them, this great older brother. But at the same time, they probably had this um, heart where they were jealous of him or uh, almost offended by maybe how much attention he got and things like that where they could have really started to resent him a bit because of his perfection. 
I'm sure it was not easy for them to now be hearing him saying he's the son of God. It's like, all right, dude, you were always a favorite, <laughs> right? We've heard the weird story about how you were conceived, <laughs> right? We've heard it a million times. Mom's always going on and on about how the Holy Spirit, you know, like, <laughs> I'm sure they were critical. They were, and then all of a sudden now he, he's saying, I'm the son of God. I'm sure it was difficult for them. And then they thought he was out of his mind. Because him being just simply good and, and, and perfect wasn't enough for them to believe. But we find that after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, it, say, it says in, uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus specifically met with James after his resurrection, before he met with the entire apostles. He met with um, a few here and there, but before he met with all of the apostles at once, he specifically went and met with James and revealed himself to James. And I wonder if at that moment, seeing your brother raised from the dead, being able to put your fingers in his nail holes through his hand, if that really did a work in his heart. And I'm sure it did. And then Jesus ascends into heaven a short time later. And in Acts 1, where all the disciples are worshiping with 120, Jesus' family, his whole family, brothers, his sisters, his mom were all there as well, worshiping, and they all received the Holy Spirit as well. So I'm sure James took the fact that he knew his brother was always perfect. He was always so good, always so right, never made a mistake, always followed the law so perfectly. And then he sees his brother die and then rise, and he stands face to face with his brother who was dead he watched him maybe be taken away, and he knows that he was crucified, and he comes, and now he's been revealed to him as, as risen. And I wonder if James was like, this connects. It connects. And we also know from church history that James was known as James the Just. He was known for being like a biblical scholar and a man who knew the word extremely well. And so I wonder if he did know the prophets very well in the old testament and then he started putting things together he was perfect he died and he starts looking at the old testament and seeing all the representations of his brother seeing all the representations of the work of the cross throughout scripture and i wonder if it all clicked for him and then we find in acts chapter one he's actually worshiping his brother with the apostles and with his family what a change So James begins worshiping his brother. And we know that James, after um, a short time, he actually becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem, which is pretty crazy. Now, Paul was really the apostle to the Gentiles. He probably had the most influence when it came to missions and, and everything outside of Israel's area. And Peter was kind of the head of the church altogether at that time. But James was the pastor or the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Which, the church in Jerusalem had a lot of converted Pharisees, a lot of converted devout Jews. And so James probably dealt with the most questions and the hardest skeptics, you know? Those who were so invested in the law and, and in, their, in their traditions, he had to pastor them through that and pastor them um, towards Christ. 
What's really interesting is that in Acts chapter 15, we don't, we don't have to turn there, but there's this big debate that's going on between these converted Pharisees and devout Jews. They, they are Christians. Some will say that these aren't Christians. If you read the text, it's very clear that these are converted Pharisees. Think about that for a minute, though. Converted Pharisees. These men were, during um, Christ's life, actually his enemies who were constantly trying to catch him and debate him. Now, there's these converted Pharisees and these converted devout Jews, and they're called the Judaizers. Um, that word's not in the Bible, but that's what a lot of commentaries call them, the Judaizers. They were the ones that were saying, in order to be saved, it is through Jesus, but you have to come through the law first so that you can better understand who the Messiah is. You can't just directly receive Jesus. You need to come to Moses and through the lens of Moses see Jesus, and then you'll be able to be saved. Now, you're like, well, hold on. You're adding law. How could they be Christians? Well, just... Take a moment and see it from their side, right? They were these devout Pharisees and Jews who, who their whole lives were about the law of God. And then all of a sudden they, they see the truth of Christ. They see the salvation that they can have through the cross. And, and they know it was all represented in the Old Testament now. Now they've, their hearts have been opened to that truth. So they're like, don't they have to go look at our old traditions and see how these things pointed to him and understand that first before they can just accept this salvation? Shouldn't they maybe at least be circumcised? Shouldn't they at least invest in our culture a little bit? Like, we're open to the idea of these Gentiles being saved, but come on, they got to have a little bit of our traditions, a little bit of our law. And so it's this big debate, and it says that there was no small argument between these Judaizers and, and, and Paul. That means that they were yelling, right? This is an Eastern culture. Have you ever seen people of an Eastern culture, like, debate? <laughs> right? It's pretty intense. Like, it's not like English culture where you can debate in this very philosophical, you know, kind of way, pip, pip, you know. Uh, it's, it's a very heated argument, right? Like, I, have you ever been somewhere where you've got some Eastern culture guys in an argument? It's, it's intense. Or even Spanish guys. Like, there's a certain intensity and passion that we don't have, honestly. And it's awesome. And that's their culture. So it was a very heated argument about whether or not the Gentiles needed to come through Moses and be circumcised. And what do they do? They say, let's take this to the leaders in Jerusalem and the, the apostles. So they do. And Peter and the apostles and James, the brother of Jesus, all take a look at this. And they hear out both sides. And what's interesting is it's James, as the leader of the church in Jerusalem in Acts 15, that stands up. And he doesn't say, we've decided. He says, this is the word. This is what we're going to do. And he says, they are allowed to be um, Christians without getting circumcised and coming through Moses, but let's encourage them to abstain from um, things of blood and of and to stay away from sexual morality. He's like, yeah, like they need to understand that some of this stuff is important, but they don't need to come through the law. They need to avoid sexual immorality. They need to abstain from things um, with blood. Now, there's a little debate on that. We won't get into that, but um, James is this man who stands up with a lot of authority in the Jerusalem. Um, church and even really settles this whole debate saying no they can come directly to christ there doesn't have to be a pit stop at moses they can come directly to christ the gospel shared simply jesus loves you god sent his only begotten son to die for you so that whoever believes would have eternal life and not perish that is simple enough and enough for them to be saved amen so James has a lot of authority, and he sets some things straight in the early church. And then what we have here is James' letter to 
the church in Jerusalem, it says, and then it says to all those in, uh, of, the, of the scattered um, Israelites. Um, James is a book that's all about faith, as I said, but it's a very commanding tone. And we've seen that James had a lot of authority, and he writes the book of James with a lot of authority. There are 50 imperatives in the Greek. That means there are 50 commanding verbs. They're not suggestions. They are verbs that carry the tone of commandment. 50 of them. That's a lot for how short the book of John is, or James is. That comes out to a commanding verb every other verse. So throughout the book of James, we're receiving a lot of commandments from him. He's saying, if you believe what you say, you believe this. If you say... If you believe this, then act like this. Do this. Don't do that. But you'll also realize that it's written with this tone of love and tenderness at the same time. And he heavily relies on the Sermon on the Mount. You can go through the book of James and just see all the, all the correlations and, and clear. Um, it's clear that he took from the Sermon on the Mount in a lot of these areas. So he's taking his brother's commands in the Sermon on the Mount, and he's reapplying them in this letter um, to Jerusalem and to all those who are um, scattered. So let's go ahead and take a look. Let's start here in James 1.1. It says, James, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. So he says to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. The word there is translated in some translations as the scattered, um, 12, those are the 12 tribes that are scattered. The word dispersion or scattered there in the Greek, it actually carries the idea of scattering seeds, throwing out seeds. That's the literal understanding of the word he uses here. And I think that's awesome because after the persecution in Jerusalem arose, they all scattered. And what he tells us here is that it was like God's throwing out seeds. And I thought about that. And I was like, that's so awesome because when we gather together here, we're the church. But then God also scatters us as seeds of, of the gospel in our everyday lives everywhere we go. We're kind of planted at your job site. Like God's planting you there, right? He's planting you in your family at your work as a seed. He's scattered you there as a seed that can, can bring the gospel there. That's pretty awesome. It's also interesting in this first verse, he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He takes the title of servant of God and Jesus, not half-brother. Me and Jesus were really tight, you know? He doesn't take that. Like, he could very easily just say, hey, I'm the half-brother of Jesus, so y'all better listen up. But what he does instead is he says, a servant Right? We're, all, we're all family with God as believers, but we're also all servants of God. Two different titles, they have different aspects, but they're both true about us, aren't they? And James had more right than any of us to say, I'm family with Jesus. Because he literally was. He grew up with him. But James doesn't take that title because I believe James here is, is taking the title of a servant because he doesn't want more honor given to him than should be given to him. You notice, like, there are a lot of actors whose siblings become actors. And it's not that they're both great actors. Come on. It's because they're connected, right? We know that to be true. Same thing, like, we almost had 
a third bush. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's because the families are connected, right? And they get a certain amount of honor that maybe they didn't earn, but it was simply given to them because of their name. James could have used his name. He could have said, I'm, I'm James, the half-brother of Jesus, and just kind of name-dropped and really risen to a lot of authority. But we see James here, even in his epistle, is saying, listen to me as a servant of God, not as the half-brother of Jesus. I think that's really powerful. He's showing a lot of humility in that, and then he's also showing a lot of wisdom in the sense that he doesn't want people to glorify him more than they should. And so, I mean, we're one verse in, and I'm already ministered to. I don't know about you guys. James, uh, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various kinds of trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Count it all joy. He just said to the saints or to these Israelites who were scattered, right? And they were scattered because of trials. And he's saying to them, count it all joy when you meet these various kinds of trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now we'll say, he says count it as joy. He doesn't say feel it as joy, right? He doesn't say, hey, you should just be happy, right? Just be happy. I know you probably lost some relatives. I know you lost your home. Just be happy about it. No, he says count it as joy. That's a mathematical term, right? He's not saying you need to feel so good right now. We're allowed to hurt, right? Someone you know dies, like even if they're a Christian, you know they go to heaven, like you should be joyful about that. But at the same time, you're allowed to hurt. You're allowed to grieve. You know, they probably had close friends and families that had died. They, they lost everything in this um, persecution. And he's saying count it as joy. And then he tells us why we can count it as joy. Not because it feels good right now, but he says, for you know, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What he's saying here is that faith doesn't have its full effect on our lives without trials. Right? So everyone in this room is either coming out of a trial, in a trial, or about to go into a trial. That's just life. (laughs) Right? So if things are good... Just wait. <laughs> right? I heard a pastor say, everyone you know is going to die. You just don't know the order. Right? That's tough. But everyone we know in here is going to die. We just don't know who first. <laughs> Sobering. <laughs> so, he's telling us here to count it as joy because it does a work in us that creates steadfastness, that completes us in our sanctification. Trials are there to actually build up our faith and to test our faith and bring us out better. 1 Peter 1 says a very similar thing here. Verse 6, In this you rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, through though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So he tells us what we have to be joyful about. We're not joyful or or happy about our pain. We're not sadistic, right? It's not like we like pain. That's not what the Christian life is about. But it's about in pain, knowing that life isn't about what my current circumstances are. Life is so much more than that. That I have this inexpressible joy that I will be in glory with Jesus one day because he's saved me. That's why we can have joy, a deep down true joy in in knowing that we're living for eternity not for this temporal life but as i said that doesn't mean that we're sadistic and just say like oh well you got to have fun when you're in pain like you're allowed to hurt james is not saying that he's saying but in your hurting know that you have this hope this this joy that you can know that forever you're going to be with god completely perfect because of the work he's done so he continues here in James 1.5. And it seems like he's changing subjects, but he's really not. And in verse 5, let's read. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So he goes from telling us to count it as joy, and and that trials are going to do a work in us that will bring us out more complete in the end. Like a gold that's burned to burn off the uh, other stuff in it. I can't think of the word, sorry. To burn out, you know how the... Okay, we're done. He tells us all this, and then he says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. And then he says this about doubting. But let him ask in faith, not with doubting. For the one who, who, who doubts that is driven and tossed by the wind, and that person is not going to receive anything from the Lord because he is a double-minded man. What is he talking about here? Well, he's saying that when you ask God for wisdom, know that he is a generous God who will give you that wisdom and ask for that wisdom in faith. Right, so what he's talking about here is, is, do you truly believe when you go to God asking him for, for wisdom, asking him for really to help you in your trials, to help you see that your spiritual life is more important than your physical life? That's the context still. He's saying... If you don't see this, if you're not able to count all these trials as joy, if you can't see the work that God's doing in here, ask for wisdom, and God will give it to you. But don't doubt. Because we can go to God and say, God, help me see this. Help me see this eternal kind of view that I'm not seeing right now. But if you ask it and you don't believe that God will actually give that to you, or you're not sure if it's really true, He's saying you won't be able to receive it because you're not asking in faith. Because it takes faith to receive the wisdom of God, which will allow us to perceive things eternally. To perceive things in light of, of the work that Jesus has done and where our lives are going 
into the new life with Jesus Christ for all of eternity. It takes faith to believe it and to receive wisdom from him in our hard times, in, in, in hardships. So we must go to God for wisdom, but we must believe that he can give us this wisdom and that that wisdom will change our perception on things. If we don't believe, he won't give it. How many of you lack wisdom sometimes? Right? And I don't just mean simply in, in, in everyday kind of decisions, right? We all lack wisdom in those areas, but also we lack wisdom spiritually, don't we? To view things the way that God would want us to view them. To look at things the way that Christ would look at them. To treat situations and, and respond to circumstances the way that Christ would. We need wisdom to do that because our flesh is going to constantly push us in the other direction. Hardships come, our flesh is going to try to figure it out. Make a plan. And you know what? That, that isn't going to work a lot of times. What you need is the wisdom of God. Uh, eternal perception. Because even if you and your flesh can temporarily fix your problem, it's going to be a very short amount of time until you have another problem. You know what I'm saying? But if you have the wisdom of God and you're able to perce- perceive these things and perceive the work that he's doing in your life through the trials in your life, it doesn't matter what life throws at you. You are living for eternity. You're not living for this temporal life, and nothing is going to be able to get you down because you're living for eternity. He says that a, a doubting person is like a person who is, who is tossed around by waves. Um, I was in California this last week. I uh, got to go for a conference out there. And uh, I've been surfing, like, I think maybe twice. And one of the days, I had a long extended um, break in the middle of the day. So I went out, and I rented a surfboard, and I went to the beach, right? And uh, it had been probably, like, eight years since I last tried to surf, okay? And even then, didn't really know what I was doing, okay? Eight years ago. And it's been eight years since I even knew anything, okay? So I go out there, and uh, surfing is so much harder than it looks. (laughs) Does anybody know that to be true? If you even tried to surf, you know it's harder than it looks. Right? They're out there sitting on there like, yeah, you just turn the board around and you catch the wave. Duh. And then you stand up. How hard is that? I know how to stand up. I know how to turn something around. It's easy. <laughs> it's not easy at all. And what I noticed is, also, if you don't make a full commitment to the wave, and you're like, oh, I'm going to turn for this one. Oh, wait, no, that's not a very good one. So you try to turn back, and you're just doing this little weird thing, and then the, what happens is your board is sitting sideways, and the wave just crashes on top of you. And then you're flipping around in that wave, and your board is connected to your foot, pulling you in another direction, and you're just like tumbling around, like you know they call it like a like a washing machine, right? Like you're getting tumbled around, you're getting washed out. That happened to me a bunch. <laughs> and uh, I did catch some waves, but I did was not able to stand up. Okay, so um, he's saying here that when we go to God for wisdom in all of our circumstances that we need to commit to that wave, right? He's talking about surfing here. Just kidding. <laughs> He's like, commit to the wave. Because when you go, I'm not sure, you're going to get hit with that wave, and you're going to be washed out. You're going to be tossed around. I know that to be true physically, and it's also true spiritually. Let's continue here. Verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. 
For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. It flower, it, its flower fail, falls, sorry, and its beauty perishes. So also with the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So he tells us, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich brother rejoice in his or boast in his humili- humiliation. Right? So what is he talking about here? Well, he tells us that there are those who are poor. Probably the majority of the church was poor because they were being persecuted. They probably did not have a lot. But there were also rich Christians, apparently. And he's telling us that the poor, who, who don't have anything or had everything taken from them, should rejoice in the sense that they're going to be exalted and receive more than, than they can ever imagine. Eternally, you have everything. Ephesians 1 says that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. We lack nothing in Christ. But physically, you can lack a lot. And he's like, so boast and rejoice in your exaltation, your glorification that you will receive in Christ. If you're poor, just know that you're not poor in the kingdom of God. But then he says the rich in their humiliation. Well, if you're rich, you seem to have everything figured out. You seem to have everything you could ever want. Right? Maybe you've got the perfect house, you've got a good savings account, you have great cars, you have a good social status, you have high position. Someone could look at you, maybe a poor person, and say, they have it all. Well, a rich person should boast in their humiliation, saying, actually, these things are nothing. Because I'm nothing without Christ. These things mean nothing in light of eternity. They will pass away. They will, like a flower, flower, a flower, a flower, one day they will wilt and die. I can't take any of this with me. So it's nothing to boast about. Right? So they can take a humble stance. As a rich person, you can take a humble stance and say, these things don't actually mean anything. These things don't really bring me joy. God brings me joy. And I can boast in what I'm going to receive in him, but also the fact that everything I've gained physically here doesn't actually matter. That's a humble thing, because oftentimes what you find is when you earn something, you, you work hard for something, you get that thing, you want to boast. Look what I did. I got that job. I got that promotion. I deserve these things. No, you don't. You should be boasting your, humili- your humbleness, the humbleness that God will bring that He will humble the entire earth and say, none of it mattered. None of these physical treasures mattered. What I cared about was your heart. And when we realize that like the stuff that we work for and all these physical treasures don't really matter, we can take a point of humility there and say, yeah, like don't don't judge me based on these things. Like these things don't define me. God defines me. And same thing for the poor. If you don't have a lot, that doesn't define you. Either way here, he's saying that whether you're rich or poor, that does not define who you are. What we receive eternally defines who we are. So in these three areas, he said, count it as joy when you meet trials. He tells us to ask God for wisdom and to believe that he will give it for us to be able to perceive things eternally. And then three here, the issue that they had with the poor and the rich, he says, to view things in light of eternity again. You see, so when you're in trials, when you lack wisdom, or, or whatever your circumstances are in life, he's saying to look at it eternally versus temporally. 
I heard hope defined this way, helping others perceive eternity. And I like that. I believe this whole passage here is about hope. It's hoping in faith. Placing our hope in what we've received from Christ, not on what this life offers us. Matthew 6, 20 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Is this a suggestion from Jesus? Did Jesus say, try not to? It's a good idea to not lay up your treasures on earth. Jesus says, do not. It's an imperative. It's a command. Do not store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But instead, treasures in heaven where nobody's going to steal it. It never goes out of date. It never expires. It never is ruined by rain or sunlight. I mean, everything we own either goes out of style or is ruined over time, right? Our clothes go out of style. Some of us, our clothes are are out of style. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding, y'all. Not judging anybody here. Jay's looking at Tyler. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> You're not out of style. <laughs> our clothes can go out of style. Our cars can go out of style. Our house furnishings can go out of style. Your house itself is ruined by the sun and the rain. Rust. It's all stuff. It just starts to fall apart. Your clothes start to fall apart eventually, don't they? Everything in this life falls apart. Your brand new car, by the time you're done paying it off, is worth nothing, right? We know that to be true. If our, our hope is in these temporal things, these temporal things will always let us down. And we're going to always be chasing the next thing, the new thing, the better model, right? What does Jesus say? Do not store up your treasures here on earth, but live for eternal things. That's hope. Our hope is is not in things here on earth, but it's eternal perspective that gives us hope. And when we have everything going well in our lives, we just ignore this. We just ignore it. And we go, I'm really hoping for this. I'm really hoping for that. And I'm not saying money is bad. Money, when it's... Steward well, stewarded well for God is a blessing. But money is the worst God, which Jesus goes on to tell in this passage. And that it will be a God who fights hard for your affections. And you can't worship both. You cannot worship God and money, it says. So James tells us here, in this text, that we have to have an eternal perspective. If you've lost everything, don't be trying to gain it all back and saying my hope is in, in my redemption and in getting my home back and in getting my job back. 
that's still not your hope, right? Because you can still have money as a God when you're poor because you're trying to get it. And you can have money as a God when you're rich very easily because you have it. But either way, money is a horrible God. In fact, anything that is a God that is not God Almighty is a horrible God and will leave you empty, hollow, and broken at the end of the day. There's nothing in this world that will complete us like the work of Christ. There's nothing in this world that will give us true satisfaction, true joy like Christ. And we as believers have to start representing this better. I know I do. Because I can easily put my hope in physical things. Can you? We're always looking forward to that next physical thing, the next situation here. I mean, I can do that in ministry if I'm being honest. My hope is not in how well Austin Chapel does as a church. My hope is not in how well I preach a sermon. If that's our hope, ministry is also a terrible God. Right? Ministry is serving God. But when ministry becomes a God, it's a terrible God too. Because it cannot complete us. Only Jesus can complete us. So it doesn't matter what you're working towards or hoping in. If it isn't something that you're stewarding towards Jesus or for Jesus, then it is not something you need to be hoping in. Because it needs to always be in Jesus. And the other things you do, you do because your hope's already in Jesus. If we would start making every decision with the wisdom of God, perceiving things eternally, our lives would look very different. Because a lot of times we think that we are already wise. We think that we're already pretty smart and we can make decisions and make plans ourselves and do it really well. I've got this game plan for my life. You should look at my 10-year plan. It is fantastic. That's the kind of stuff we think, right? I've got it figured out right now. Have you gone to God with it, truly gone to God with it, and say, Lord, I'm going to lay this on the altar, and if this isn't what you want, sacrifice it right now. I don't care. If you want me to be poor, broke, lose my job, whatever it is for your name, that's your will, I'll do it. We have to lay these things, sacrifice all these other idols, all these other gods, and say, Lord, they're not. My God, they do not give me the hope that you give me. You guys, if we could do this, we would be such better representations of what Christianity is all about, of what faith is all about. You know, St. Francis of Assisi, was it Assisi or Assisi? Assisi? <laughs> Assisi. Uh, he always said what? Preach always, and if you must, with your words, right? Now, I get what he's saying there, and sometimes I, I want to disagree, because I'm like, you have to share the gospel. Like, the, the Bible is so clear. You need to share the gospel with your words. Like, you absolutely have to. The Bible over and over tells us to. But there's a lot of truth there, that the message we're speaking better be represented in our lives, or it will disqualify the message we're speaking. If you're like saying it's all about heaven, it's all about eternity, and then you're living for this earth, and it's so clear that you actually only care about stuff going on right now, why would they believe you? They're like, you're living the same way I am. You have all the same goals I have. What's the difference? Have you really received something that I haven't? doesn't seem like it. Isn't that convicting? Our lives should represent what we believe.
And that's the theme throughout the book of James is that our lives should represent what we believe. And it's not easy. And James doesn't make it easy for us. This book is hard. It's challenging. It's commanding. But he does it in love because James knows what's best for our lives. He knows that at the end of each one of those things that we're working towards, they will just, we'll still feel hollow. We'll still feel broken. We'll still feel needy. He's like, if you would just have this eternal perception, it would be so much better for your life. You'd have a life that's truly filled with joy and relationship with Christ. So I want to close our time by asking God for wisdom. If any of you lack wisdom, what does he tell us to do? Does anybody lack wisdom in here? If you guys will stand with me, let's pray. If you guys lack wisdom and you want God's guidance on your life, just pray with me here. Just in, in praying your heart, meaning the question, Lord, will you give me faith? Will you give me wisdom here? Lord, I, uh, I ask you personally for wisdom. Lord, I am tired of trying to make decisions based on my own wisdom or my own knowledge. Lord, I'm try- tired of trying to lead my own life. Lord, we all here repent of all the times we don't turn to you when we should, when we think we can figure it out without you. Lord, we all know that we lack wisdom. Lord, so we, we humbly come and we ask you, Lord, would you give us wisdom, spiritual wisdom, that would open our eyes to eternal things, to what life truly is about, that we would live in a way that says, life cannot defeat me because Christ has already defeated life and death and given me a new life, a new hope. I'm a new creation in him. I have everything in him. I lack no spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Lord, would you help our moments of doubt when we go to you, but we're not sure if that actually is going to work and we want to do it our way. When you say, here's what I want you to do, and we go, that sounds awful. I don't want to do that. Would you help us in those moments of doubt so that we're not tossed around by the wave of this life? And instead, Lord, allow us to catch that wave of wisdom. In your name, Jesus.